So we're going to get right in. We've got a lot of text to cover. We're going to hop right in and look at verse, uh, verse 1 through 3. What we'll do this morning is we'll unpack the story, and um, then we'll turn towards application. So first we see the placement of Daniel. Darius the Mede, we didn't cover this in our reading, so stay with me. Darius the Mede, he decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. So this is, depending on how you're calculating, it's our third or fourth king. It's a little hard to tell sometimes just because of name stuff in, in the book of Daniel so far. This guy's name is Darius, and there's the tag on there, the Mede. Okay, so what's happening right now is Babylon has been taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. Okay, so it was the Medes and the Persians that came together to form this new superpower. They took over Babylon, forced them out. So we have this, this new ruler, Darius the Mede. This happened around 539 BCE, so this was a long time ago, way before any of us were born, obviously. Okay, the account we read here is happening around that time when, when this, uh, this new superpower came in. So who is Darius? Who is Darius the Mede? There's a few different theories. We don't have a ton of time to talk through that. If you're interested in that, come talk to me after. I'll point you to a commentary because I'm not going to try and explain it to you all. But there's a very good case to be made that Darius the Mede is actually the same person as um, Cyrus, King Cyrus, who we read about in Second uh, Chronicles. Okay, so as was common in this area, in this era, people usually had um, two names. Okay, so if you want to think of it, this is like maybe like your hip-hop name. Okay, so you have Sean Combs, and then it's like P Diddy or Puff Daddy or Puffy or whatever name you go by. Right, you usually had dual titles in this time. So that's what's going on. Okay, if you want more than that, again, talk to me afterwards. And I'll point you to a good commentary to explain that. But so King Darius, he steps into this, this new empire. And like anybody, if you are a new man in charge, you're like, okay, this organization's a little uh, different than I would like. It's probably not in the same tip-top shape that I want it. So he appoints 120 um, governors, if you will. Okay, And they're going to rule over, even though it says 120, there's probably more like 20 to 30 regions that these people are ruling over. Okay, so he's got these governors set up, but what's really cool is Daniel, who's been this faithful Jewish man in this foreign land, is actually looked at to have an even higher title than governor. Okay, it says in verse 2, the king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. So this is, this is really crazy, okay? Daniel is probably around 80 years old at this time. There's this change in power, but because Daniel has been so good at his job under the Babylonian rule, this new leader sees that and actually asks him to be essentially uh, second in command. Um, so he is one of three ru regional rulers over these 120 governors. Okay, This is crazy, and it's awesome to see this um, because it talks about Daniel's gifting and his faithfulness to God in this story. Um, look at verse 3 with me. It says, Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. All right, so Daniel is absolutely crushing it right now, okay? He is set up to be the, the successor to the king because of how good he's doing. Now, like anybody, when we see other people succeed, we're like, shoot, that guy's awesome, and I'm not, right? It creates a little jealousy in us sometimes. So 
verses four through nine, we see this plot, right? The plot from the conspirators. His rulers are frustrated. They're mad. They don't like this foreign guy being the successor to the king. So you see in verse four, it says, the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs. All right, so these rulers, they go on this mudslinging mission, okay? Um, we're about to start seeing this in full force, right? Going into the 2020 election, you have all these crazy commercials like Joe Biden said Chipotle was the best burrito place in the world, but why was he eating at Qdoba three times last week, right? It's ridiculous stuff, all this crazy stuff. It's more serious than that. But this is what these guys are trying to do, right? They're trying to find fault in what he's doing, okay? So they go to like Babylonian TMZ and Babylonian Esquire. They're trying to do all this dirt digging. And what does it say in the text? They couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. Daniel was always faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So this is the first miracle in the story, right? A squeaky clean politician, Okay, but what a model Daniel is for us, okay? He's amazing at his, jo- at his job, he's doing everything by the book, and all of this is in spite of being placed in this pagan culture, right? So it's hard sometimes when we're in a culture to remain faithful, but Daniel's in this, this high position of power. He's amongst these people that are probably pretty cutthroat, right? So much so that they're gonna have a plot against him, yet he remains faithful and true to the God of Israel. So we see in verse five, they concluded, right? They can't find anything. This guy is awesome. He's a boy scout, right? They're like, we can't get anything on this guy. Here's what they say in verse five. Our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. Okay, so this is the part in the movie where the, the, uh, the evil villains, they get together and conspire, and then they do their evil chuckle, right? Because they've, they've hatched this plot, and the plot is afoot. Here's what happens. Verse 6, so the administrators and the high officials, they went to the king and said, long live King Darius. You got to butter your guy up before you give him a proposal first, right? Hear that, right? If you want to talk to your pastor about a proposal, talk good about us first. Uh, I'm just kidding. It's a joke, guys. <laughs> Funny. Cool. We'll keep going. They don't all land, right? You got to try. All right, verse seven. <laughs> we're all in agreement, right? All these rulers, administrators, we're all in agreement that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person, any person who prays to anyone divine or human except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. Okay, so what's going on here is the, these guys are not just appealing to his earthly power. They're essentially setting him up as a spiritual power as well. So for thir- 30 days, there was going to be one representative to the gods. That was going to be Darius. There's something intoxicating there, right, about being the sole channel to the gods that everyone has to come. If they want to pray to anyone about anything, they have to come through Darius first. There's something intoxicating about that, right? And moreover, the king saw that this would probably be pretty useful. If he's a new ruler, he's trying to set up this new regime, that would consolidate power pretty well, right? If everyone had to take every petition to their gods to you first. So it's really a smart, um, a smart socio-political play for him, if you will. So they go on in verse 8, it says, And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So this was the reality of the time of the Medo-Persian regime, right? Something signed and sealed by the king, it could not be changed. 
We see this actually in the book of Esther as well. In Esther 8.8, we read, uh, But remember that whatever has already been written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can never be revoked. So once it's signed, it's done. It is law. So in verse 9, we see King Darius sign the law. So there it is. What's done is done. The law is in place. It's irrevocable. So we move on to the pit of the lions, verses 10 through 18. It says, When Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. So what's interesting is Daniel's not really acting in rebellion. He's not doing this because they, they signed the law, but rather Daniel's faithfulness has become an act of rebellion. You see that? So as the culture around Daniel changes, the things that he does might become rebellious. There's a word in there for us as the church too. Daniel's habits and practices, they were so well known that they knew exactly the plan to develop and capture him when he was praying. Okay, so these guys, these rulers, they knew that if, they had to ch- if Daniel had to choose between obedience to God or death, he was going to choose death. And this observation, really, it's both challenging and convicting to us as God's people. Would your friends and acquaintances, never, never mind your enemies, okay, cast them aside, would your friends and acquaintances say that about us with equal confidence? Is our commitment to constant prayer so obvious to everyone we meet that in theory they could like hatch up a plan to, to get us in trouble? So it says here that Daniel, he prayed towards Jerusalem. It's interesting, right? Oftentimes we, we hear this and we think of um, maybe a Muslim person praying towards Mecca. So as Christians, we don't, we're not bound to this. However, um, this was a practice that was likely coming from 1 Kings. Okay, so uh, Solomon, and in one of his prayers, he talked about Israel, if they're captive in a foreign land, as they are now, that they are to pray towards the land that God had given them. It was kind of a, a vision, if you will, or, or a way to pray with hopeful expectations that God would bring them back. So not only does Daniel keep on praying, but he doesn't live in hiding with his practices, okay? He's praying in a place that, that can easily be seen. And the officials know that he's going to do this. All right, so they, they hatch this plan, they tell the king the, the law sign, and then they like sneak over like a bunch of little schoolboys, like peering around the corner, right? It's like, is Daniel praying right now? Is he? Did he start yet? There he is, boom! He violated the law. So what do they do? Verse 12, they went straight to the king and reminded him about this law. Didn't you sign a law that uh, for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone except you will be thrown into the den of lions? Yes, the king replied, that decision stands. It's an official law of the Medes and Persians that, that can't be revoked. And then they told the king, that man Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, so they're, they're kind of putting a dig at him, right? They're like, hey, Daniel, that foreign dude that you like so much, he's ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. So they're laying it on thick here, okay? Essentially, they're, they're telling the king that Daniel's violation of this law is both hostile and habitual, He's not just disobeying anybody, king. He's disobeying you and your law. That's an act of hostility. 
And on top of that, he's doing it habitually. He prays three times a day. Oh, king, how dare he? They're laying it on thick here. And it's at this point, right, the king realizes that he's been duped, that he's been suckered into implementing a law to take down a man that he actually is very fond of, that he very much respects. Verse 14, we see, hearing this, the king was deeply troubled, and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. So the king, he he brought in his legal counsel, okay? Like, it's Jack McCoy time for my Law and Order fans, right? He calls the associate district attorney, and, you know, Jack McCoy is always the guy you call when the law's really complicated, right? So he calls everyone in. Is there any loophole, anything we missed, any way we can save Daniel? But the time's run out. The men who hatched this plan, they come back. They say, your majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed. So the king knew he at this point had no choice. If he were to allow Daniel to violate the law, then the king himself would be violating the law. And we read in verse 16, it says, So alas, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to him, and I love this, it says, May your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. Now, I love this because I don't think this is some form of mockery. But rather, this is a king's um, wish or, or request or hope of desperation for somebody that he actually genuinely cares for. And I think we can see that just because of how much the king was disturbed over this unjust situation. So in verse 17, it says, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace and he spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep that night. So the king was so upset, he didn't eat, okay? There was no entertainment, no Netflix, no late night show with Johnny Carson. He went straight to bed and he tossed and he turned. He was in absolute anguish over Daniel's punishment. But the law is the law. So then, like a a kid on Christmas morning, if you will, the king hops out of bed, the first sign of daybreak, soon as the, the sun peeks over the horizon, the king gets up. He rushes over to see what happened, what came of Daniel. This is where we see the protection from God. Look at me in verse 20. It says, when he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you served so faithfully, able to rescue from you from the lions. And you know, it, it really is, it's so sad that we know this story so well because the craftsmanship of it is amazing. We don't get any hints or inklings of what's going to happen before. Now I know like 95% of you, you know the result. But imagine if you're hearing this historical account for the first time, like the, the pregnant pause here, right? Daniel was your God whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions. And then silence. They wait. Did he say anything? We, we wait, right? The reader waits. And then, long live the king, in verse 21. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. 
The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. So it says here that he lifted Daniel up out of the den, right? What, what happened to those irrevocable laws? Well, if you've ever played pickup basketball, okay, stay with me here, right? Any pickup b-ball fans? Yeah, yeah, let's go, let's go, okay. So when you play pickup basketball, there's not a referee, right? There's no just like unbiased arbiter of justice, okay? There's not, you know, like it's, it's me versus you, right? I'm trying to beat you. You're trying to beat me. Things happen, it gets a little heated, okay? If you want to see my real side, we'll go play basketball later. But what happens when both of you and another guy, right, you go up for a rebound, you both think that you didn't hit it out of bounds and it goes out of bounds, and then you both go like this, right? Like, well, that wasn't, I didn't hit it out, you hit it out, right? The laws of gravity would have been suspended for a second if you think that I hit it out, right? So what happens? Well, you shoot for it, right? What does it mean if you shoot for it? It means that the ball now somehow becomes the arbiter of justice, right? Okay, so if I think that you hit it out, you think I hit it out, I shoot for it. If I make it, what does that mean? It means the other guy knocked it out, right? If I miss it, the basketball gods have spoken, and the other guy was right, okay? And then without fail, right, what, what does someone always say after that shot? Ball never lies, that's right, okay? Ball never lies. So that's what's going on here, right? There was this ancient Near Eastern practice. It was called Innocence by Ordeal, okay? You can tweet that out later, hashtag Innocence by Ordeal, right? It's this idea of ball never lies. So they thought if, in our justice system, praise God, it's become more, uh, more sophisticated than this, right? They, they thought whatever form of punishment, you know, maybe you, you survived the torture chamber or they used to throw people out in the middle of the river and if they got to the edge and survived, then the, the gods were in their favor and they were innocent, right? Ball never lies, okay? So that's what's going on with Daniel here. That's why this law may seem, quote unquote, irrevocable. God has shown them that Daniel truly was innocent. Okay, so then verse 23, it ends with this. Not a scratch was found on Daniel, for he had trusted in his God. So Daniel, he was protected by the same God that's been leading and guiding and keeping him all throughout his entire lifetime in exile. This guy hasn't lived in his homeland in 60 years. This is just another example of God's faithfulness to Daniel. He's always coming through for Daniel, as he is for us. What's beautiful is it seems that Daniel had such great faith at this point that he had gotten to a place where he really was okay, whether or not he lived or he died. Okay, we see this elsewhere in scripture. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.21, he says, for, for to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better, because it means being with Christ. So Daniel had came to this place, his, this place in his faith that he understood that if he suffered the penalty of death, that was okay because he would be in immediate glory with the Father. And coming to this, this place in our faith is pivotal, even for us today. We're not going to go in alliance at any time soon, but when circumstances seem overwhelming, coming to this place in our faith allows us to have confidence in our God, no matter the circumstances around us. So finally, we see the proclamation from the king. 
Look at verse 26 with me. It says, I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. In verse 28, so Daniel prospered under the reign of King Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Some translations say that is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So again, familiarity gets in the way of receptivity. What's such a bummer about reading this, again, is that a a pagan king for like the fourth or fifth time in Daniel is singing the praises of the God of Israel. It doesn't shock us because it's like, oh yeah, of course, like at the end of these stories, you know, it's like that's what pagan kings do these days, you know, but it's not, right? This should shock us as we hear this story afresh. A pagan king, again, is singing the praises of our God. So as we seek to take this really familiar story, okay, and apply it to our lives, there's three things that I want us to see. And I think these, for us, is a good application of us as a church here at Sojourn Church Carlisle, as we live here in this neighborhood, in this area. Okay, first, we, we need to see the power of habit. Second, the power of prayer. And then thirdly, the power of God. So as people who have grown up predominantly in the, in the modern era, okay, we all, within our bones, whether or not you like it, we have this, this um, motto, in a sense, or this idea that we are what we think. Okay, we are what we think. If I can nerd out for a second, I haven't taken many philosophy classes, but you always hear of Rene Descartes, right? He, the Car- Cartesian philosophy. He says, I think, therefore I am. You may have heard that before. I think, therefore I am. So this idea is created in us and in our churches, this tendency towards reducing everything to intellectual pursuits. Okay, if I know more doctrine or Bible stories, then I'll be more godly. Okay, here's what one author, James K. Smith, he says this in in his book, You Are What You Love. He says, like Descartes, we view our bodies as, at best, extraneous temporary vehicles for trucking around our souls or minds, which we, sorry, I typed this wrong, which is where all the real action takes place. In other words, we imagine human beings as giant bobbleheads with humongous heads and itty-bitty unimportant bodies. It's the mind that we picture as mission control of the human person. It's thinking that defines who we are. He says, you are what you think is a motto that reduces human beings to brains on a stick. That is such vivid imagery. And this is the way of being that we all embody, right? We think, therefore we are but it's not the whole picture. And culturally, what's arising, I know there's a lot of backstory, but stay with me here. Culturally, what's arising is this reality that we're more than just what we think, and we actually are what we do. Okay, you hear that? You are what you do. Here's what one psychologist says. He says, all our life, so far as it has definite form, is but a mass of habits, practical, emotional, and intellectual, systematically organized for our weal or our woe, and bearing us irresistibly toward our destiny, whatever the latter may be. So what is it? Do we, do we think our way into being, or do we act our way into thinking? Does the way I think shape what I do, or do the things I do shape what I think? The reality is it's both, right? We don't want to be reductionistic and say, well, 
The modern era was wrong, so we're all postmodern and we're all on board with that, right? Our faith teaches us that we are both a thinking being and a doing being. It's both. And I think that's what we see here today in this text is the, the power of habit as modeled by Daniel. There's this work by a guy named uh, Charles Duhigg, okay? He looks at and unpacks how influential our habits are. Um, it's called The Power of Habit. Um, one of the interviews he does is with uh, Super Bowl winning coach Tony Dungy. Okay, Tony Dungy, great dude, Colts coach, um, and one of his philosophies was different um, than other coaching philosophies. Okay, his coaching philosophy revolved around teaching good habits to his players. Here's what he said. Champions don't do extraordinary things, they do ordinary things, but they do them without thinking. Too fast for the other team to react, they follow the habits they've learned. So Dungy's coaching philosophy, it revolves around this idea that habits are powerful things that actually greatly shape who we are. What the heck does that have to do with Daniel? Look at verse 10, okay? I love this. This is awesome, okay? When Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with, his, with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day just as he had always done. Daniel had and believed in the power of habit, right? Prayer was Daniel's habit. So in the threat of punishment, it was just second nature. He didn't even have to think about it. It would have been harder for him actually to not pray than to pray because he was so used to doing it. It lived within his bones. So Daniel, he shows us the power of habit. And, and when we think about habit, okay, I don't want you to think like exercise or um, reading or whatever, right? There's this word that we use in the Christian faith that's been used for generations called spiritual disciplines. Okay, what are spiritual habits or disciplines? Here's what one author says. She says, disciplines are intentional ways we open up space in our lives for the worship of God. They're not harsh, but grace-filled ways of responding to the presence of Christ with our bodies. Worship happens in our bodies, not just our heads. I love that. Worship happens in our bodies, not just our heads. Okay, so oftentimes, People hear the word habit, right, or discipline. You push back a little bit. You're like, I don't want to be legalistic. And I get it, right? That's a, a certain danger. But what, what I've realized is people don't say that about other things when we talk about disciplines, right? So disciplines of the body. It's like, you know, having to breathe every three seconds, it's, it's a little restrictive. Um, so I'm just going to take a couple breaths out. Man, this whole eating thing three times a day, like, it's really become more duty than delight. So um, I'm just not going to eat until I really enjoy it again. Like, it's ridiculous, right? Those are extreme examples, but we do that with other habits, right? It's like, man, prayer, it's like, man, I'm just doing it to do it, right? Um, so I'll probably just wait, you know, like, I don't want to think I'm saved by works. I get it, yes. But that's the, the I think, therefore I am mindset, right? The things we do shape how we think, just as much as the things we think shape what we do. Dale Ralph Davis, he's a commentator on Daniel. He says this. He says, consistency assists courage. Y'all hear that? Okay, the, the point we all hear when we think Daniel in the lines in is courage. Dale Ralph Davis says, consistency assists courage. Discipline feeds faithfulness. In the crisis Daniel's habits set him free to be faithful. So you are what you do, okay? The power of spiritual habits, it's, it's evident in Daniel's life. It's, it's second nature. 
for him to pray. So as, as believers, this should encourage us today to, to cultivate spiritual habits as well. We also see from Daniel, right, the power of, of prayer. Okay, uh, Pat, uh, Pastor James, he's got this amazing quote. You'll, you'll hear it in due time, and he'll say it again and again. So I want to give him credit because he, he says this. I'm just using it. Steal like an artist, tweet it. Okay, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. This is from Oswald Chambers. Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Y'all hear that? Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. So we don't just pray for the things we're going to come up against, right? We don't just pray for the work. Prayer is the work. Pastor H.B. Charles, he picks up on this idea. He says, why should I pray, you ask? Answer, prayer works. More accurately, God works when we pray. When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. So it's actually when we go to God in prayer that he is at work in us. We get in this danger of thinking like, I need to pray so that I can be prepared for the lion's den, right? I need to pray so I can be prepared for this hard confrontation I'm, I'm going to have with a brother or sister in Christ. We forget that in prayer, God is already at work in us. And that's, what beautiful, that's what's beautiful about Daniel's habit of prayer, his faithfulness, it didn't just happen overnight. It wasn't just something that he was like, oh, I heard this law was signed in, now I'm going to pray. This is something that this guy has done at least for 60 years since he's been in exile. It wasn't just some habit he picked up. He didn't ramp up his prayer life when, when the lion's den was on the table. This was his habit. It said earlier, just as he had always done. He had always done these things. We don't know, like, maybe this changed the way he prayed, but I doubt it. Did he pray for protection? Probably, you know, but Daniel just knew that God was meeting him in that moment, that when he prayed that God was there to meet him. That's why prayer is so powerful and, and why I think we need to really, really relish in the power of prayer. All right, if you think about Daniel in exile, there was no temple for him to go to, okay? So he didn't have a Sunday church family that he could go worship with. There weren't rabbis, Right? He was so low in, in his leadership position. He probably didn't have scriptures to read either. And I think that's beautiful for, for us to remember, right? There's no barriers for prayer, right? It's like soccer is the most popular sport in the world because all you have to have is a ball, right? You need nothing to pray. If there's anything getting in the way, it's you and your excuses, right? tell you, this, this passage this week has just wrecked me, really just a punch in the gut, okay? I love rhythms. I love habits. Uh, I go to bed at the same time, okay? I wake up at the same time. If you text me past 10, I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about it. I eat at certain times of the day, okay? If you push me past 12, like, I'm going to be a little bit hangry, but Daniel's habit of prayer, okay, it's made me ask this week, what if I operated the same way when it came to prayer? What if I, I fought as vigorously to pray in the middle of the day as I do to eat my turkey sandwich at noon? What if I believed that waking up to pray was as life-giving as waking up to drink coffee? The problem is, when it comes down to it, I don't think prayer is powerful enough, right? Isn't that the 
if we work it out, get to the root of it. I think if we, if we understand that prayer is the work, if we see it as a way that we can really meet with the God of the universe, then we really can understand the power of prayer. Okay? Now, I know it's, it's easy at this point. You can, it might feel defeating, overwhelmed. It's like, I tried the whole habit thing. Still doing bad habits. I tried the whole spiritual disciplines thing, you know. It's too hard. And I hear you. I'm with you. Okay. Went to the dentist on Monday for the teeth cleaning. You know, you sit in the chair, you make small talk. Then the dreaded question, how's flossing going? You're like, what? I don't think we talked about that before. Did you say something about flossing last time? Does it count if I floss when I have chunks of food in my teeth? No? Okay. Then it's not going great, right? The dentist, to me, is such a reminder that I can't just make things happen, right? Oh, I'm just, I'm just going to go pray more. Yeah. It doesn't work, right? That's why we need to remember the power of God. Christians. Here's what we read in, in Romans 8, 9 through 11. Okay, this is, this is talking about the power of God in us, the Holy Spirit, right? It's an, enough white knuckling it, okay? Enough trying to overcome your sin by yourself. Enough trying to build all these spiritual habits by yourself. Lean on the power of God for these things because you won't succeed otherwise. It's like, I can't even floss. How am I going to pray more, right? Look at verse 9 in, in Romans 8. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. Praise God. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who don't have the Spirit of Christ living in them, they do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by his same Spirit living within you. The power of God is already at work inside of you. Right? Paul tells us that God is going to complete the work in you, that what he has set, is, is set in motion, he's going to finish the job. Do we have a part to play? Absolutely. But ultimately, it's reliance on God's spirit to get us to the end. This is something that should, should deeply encourage us. And what I love about the, this story of Daniel is that we actually see the power of God. We see that it meets you in the extraordinary things, think the lion's den, and the ordinary things, right? Just getting up to pray in the morning. We've had no trouble of seeing the power of God in these extraordinary things throughout Daniel, right? God saved Daniel uh, from death under Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar multiple times. He saved Daniel's friends from the fiery pit. That's pretty extraordinary. And then again, he saved Daniel from the mouth of lions. Like, that's really extraordinary. It's amazing. But we forget that in Daniel, God's been at work in the ordinary things too. It's on display in Daniel's simple Diet, his simple willingness to not defile himself with, with Babylonian food. We see it in his daily work. He's going to work every day. He's faithful. He's doing what's right. And here he is, a successor to the throne. Then we see God at work just in his prayers. If you want to see Daniel's prayers come to fruition, 
Read later in, in Daniel 9. It's amazing. And the, same, the same is true for us, church. The power of God, he, he, he is absolutely in the, in the extraordinary, right? Two churches coming together to partner and start a new work, that's extraordinary, right? And the power of God is, is in what we're doing. We can praise him for that. But he's also at work in the ordinary things. We forget that. In your daily rhythms, in your work, in the innocuous moments around the dinner table, the power of God is at work in those moments. He's at work in the ordinary things. So where does that leave us? Well, I want us just to consider for a second, what does this mean for our church? Some questions for you. What, what if we were a church that believed in the power of habit or spiritual disciplines? What if our habits were so prevalent that our neighbors knew exactly when we would be praying or knew exactly when we were going to be hanging out with our brothers and sisters in Christ or knew that we weren't going to be able to hang out with them Sunday mornings because we were worshiping with God's people? What if we were a church that believed in the power of prayer, that believed we don't pray for the work, but rather that prayer is the work? What if we wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly believe that prayer was an opportunity to meet with God and for him to actually work on us while we did it? And then lastly, like what if we were a church that, that really, really believed in the power of God, not just in, in the extraordinary things, but in the ordinary, everyday things? I think if we believed in the power of all those things, we would be able to do what we want to do. We'd be able to reach people with the gospel in this neighborhood and beyond, in South Louisville and beyond. As we draw our series to a close, um, one of the things that we need to remember about the book of Daniel is that it ultimately put, points to someone greater, right? The lesson of the story of Daniel is not go and be like Daniel, right? It leads to failure, that leads to despair, it leads to hopelessness. The message of Daniel is that someone greater than Daniel came. The one that we were all waiting for, the one that gives us life, the one that gives us hope, the one that gives us joy. The book of Daniel points to him. Every week we celebrate a meal together called communion, and this is a celebration of the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. Biblical characters, they're great models, but they're also mirrors for us, right? Because we can see how far we fail. But what's beautiful is, is that points us to the greater Daniel, to Jesus Christ, who took on our sin, took on our brokenness, who took on our pride. He did all those things so that we could have life with him. And that's what we celebrate each week in this meal called Communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he took bread, he gave thanks, and then he broke it. He said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup of wine, said this is the, the blood of the new covenant, sealed by the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're pronouncing Christ's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, our tradition is to break off a piece of bread and to dip it in the juice. There will be stations up here at the front for you to come forward. Uh, we'll have instructions on where you're supposed to go on the screen behind me. There's gluten-free elements to my left and your right. If you're not able to come forward and take communion, we can bring the elements to you. Um, if for physical reasons you're not able to come forward. 
Um, and then lastly, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, uh, we want to ask that you not partake in this meal, not because we want to exclude you, but because this meal is, about, is for those who are about the reality of Christ. If that's something you're interested in, if you um, are curious about what that looks like, the invitation to you is to take Christ. Um, so please come and talk to me or Pastor James or one of our volunteers after the service, and we can prepare you to take communion even next week. Let me pray for us, and then we can um, come forward for communion as you're ready. Father, we're so thankful for the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're so thankful that you are a powerful God. You're working in the extraordinary things, praise you for that, but God, you're also working in the ordinary things of our lives, the things that we think don't matter to you. God, you're at work in those, and we're so thankful for that. Father, as our series comes to a close in the book of Daniel, um, I just ask that as, as a, a people of your son Jesus, that we would remember that this book points us to him, that it reminds us of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that though we deserved death, we were given life. Though we deserved penalty, we were absolved and given an inheritance. That's a beautiful reality. Jesus, this morning as we take communion, we pray that we would remember that your body and your, your, was broken for us and that your blood was spilled for us. And that it's in those reminders, in those things, that we rehearse the gospel. That we're reminded of the beautiful thing that you've done for us. And reconciling us, um, not only to um, each other in Christ, but also to our Heavenly Father. We pray all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.